Once again, to all those who are visiting with us, we uh, greet you in the name of Jesus. We're so glad that you could be here to worship with us. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through 40. What a blessing it is to be able to come into the sanctuary and experience God's word together. What a blessing it is to know that what we hold in our hands is not something that's merely written by man, but it's inspired by God and written through the personalities of men. What a blessing that in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of war, in the midst of confusion, that we, as the people of God, have a place that we can come and find peace and find answers to our tough questions and find grace in our time of need. As we read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 through 40, it's a large chunk, chunk of scripture. We won't be able to dive into every single part, but give a, a sweeping overview. And as we're reading, you may have a different translation of the Bible, so your Bible may read a little differently. Specifically in verse 36 through 38, depending on the translation you have, uh, the words there for uh, personal pronoun, his, may, may say the word father. Um, for the context of this sermon, and as we read it, I do agree with the translation that I'm reading, the English Standard Version, uh, that in this text that Paul is speaking and continuing a language that he's using by speaking to uh, a man who is a single male, amen? And once we get there, you'll, you'll see what we mean if you have a different translation. But let's read God's word together. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that I would spare you that this is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the world in this present form of this world, is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husbands. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, then it has to be. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go to your word. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Father, we come first thanking you for those who have put their faith in Jesus for making us poor in spirit. For in order to be your child, Father God, we have to be humble. We have to admit that we have no righteousness of our own. Father, we come to you spiritually bankrupt, knowing, Father God, that without your grace and without your Holy Spirit, Father God, that we would not love you and that we would not desire you, Father God. But how blessed you are, how gracious you are, Father God, that you give those who are poor in spirit an entire kingdom, God. That you give us life with you under your rule and care, Father God. And for that we say, thank you, Lord. And I pray, Father God, that as we sit under your word, that you allow us to do so with humility. That you allow us to do so, Father God, as learners, Lord. That you allow us to do so, Father God, as a deer panting forth water, Lord. Let our souls pant for you, O God, that you would allow your word to shape the way we think, Father God. That we truly would live in you and have our being, Father God. Make us poor in spirit this morning. Make me poor in spirit as I preach your word, Father God. Not as one who has it together, but as one, Father God, who is being used by your grace, Father God. Speak now, Lord. Mess us up, oh God. Flip our worldviews on top of its head if you need to, Father God. Draw the lost person to you, oh God. God, I plead for those who are single in this place and who are struggling, oh God. Help them, Father God, to find their satisfaction in you. And even as they fight and war all of their days as, as singles, Lord, and until you call them to be married. And if you do, Father God, I pray, Father God, that you would make them one in heart, Lord. Pray for those who are married, Lord, that you allow this word to speak to them. Pray for our teenagers, Lord, that you allow this word to speak to them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What a blessing it is, again, to be in the house of the Lord. When I was in college got a book called What to Do When Love's in View, and it's Finding Focus in Dating and Relationships. It's written by Dr. Conway and Jada Edwards. And when I was down here going to seminary, um, I met a a friend of mine who actually uh, was one of the persons who wrote in the praise section of the book. And in the praise section of the book, he quotes a woman by the name of Helen Keller. Helen Keller was blind and deaf. And one day she was asked a question, 
She was asked, is there anything worse than being blind? And she paused. She thought about it. And she said, yes, having sight with no vision. Having sight with no vision. You know, up until I began to court my wife, Amber, maybe a, a year before that, I, I can admit that when it came to dating relationships, I had sight, but I didn't have vision. You know, I got my first kind of girlfriend in the sixth grade. My parents didn't know about it. And I didn't know what love was. I didn't know what dating was, just like you. And it's just this little cute little thing. You're just kind of trying to make it. But I had sight with no vision. And I carried over to high school into my dating relationship, sight with no vision, all the way into college. And each of my dating relationships, I had sight but no vision. And as a result, man, got messed up. As a result, I hurt some women unnecessarily. As a result, I, I came into my marriage with unnecessarily baggage. Many Christians... Many Christian singles are dating. Many Christian singles are, are struggling in their singleness. And I believe a, a lot of the reason why you're struggling and a lot of the reasons why your, your relationships are broken and, and, and really don't go anywhere is because we have, we have sight without vision. We have accepted the world's notion of dating. We have accepted their structure, the, the expectations. We have a, a Hollywood vision of what it means to be in love, what it means to pursue a woman, what it means to, to pursue a man. We have a secular perspective on dating, on relationships, and as a result, we find ourselves sorely broken. I found myself sorely broken. But praise be to God that after a really bad relationship where, as a Christian, I, I knew that the Lord was calling me out of a relationship with a, another young woman who said she was a Christian, but we were, we were unequally yoked. And after that relationship and seeing how, how bad I hurt her, um, I, the Lord sent me on a quest to see, what does the Bible say about dating? What does the Bible say about pursuing marriage? And the Lord began to give me resources and began to bring me godly men in my life who said, this is what it looks like to pursue a woman. By God's grace, for a year before me and Amber started dating, I was able to experience that in our courtship, I believe it was healthy. But it starts with God's word. It doesn't start with Hollywood. It doesn't start with secular society. It doesn't start with what we want or what we think is best. We need to see what, God, what God's word says about dating. And God's word gives us a vision for our singleness. It gives us a vision for how we should prepare for marriage. It gives us a vision for our priorities in our relationships. And today I'm saying we need to embrace that vision. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he answers for us what, what God desires for Christian singles. What God desires for Christian singles. He gives us a roadmap for, for singleness. 
And this isn't just for singleness. This is a road map for us all. This is a road map for a, a parent who has a grade schooler who says that they have a boyfriend or their, their child has a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a, a high schooler. You know, some of us as parents, we, we have children that's in high school, freshmen in high school dating their girlfriend their boyfriend, and, and we really don't have a framework for what that should look like, how we should be shepherding our child's heart. Some of us, we let our uh, child's boyfriend or girlfriend come on over and come in, and they're part of the family, and they're freshmen in high school. Eighth grade, seventh grade, we're helping them to carry baggage. If we don't have a vision for what that time in their life should look like. So God paints a glorious and a, a beautiful picture of what singleness looks like for a Christian. And today we're going to go through this text, verse 25 through 40, by, by looking at three components. Three components of God's vision for singleness. Three components of God's vision for singleness. And the first is this. Live for Jesus with urgency. Live for Jesus with urgency. If you are a Christian single here, the first thing that God wants you to do is to live for Jesus. If you're a Christian, that's what we're called to do. We're called to live for Jesus, not for ourselves, but for Jesus and we're not just called to live for Jesus, but rather we are called to live for Jesus with urgency. In other words, not slothfulness, but with passion and with a sense of urgency. In verse 1, we read, verse 25, we read, now concerning the betrothed. So Paul is going to use this word betrothed throughout this text. And by betrothed, this is a, a Jewish term, a a Jewish word that speaks of an engagement period. As a Jew, a person would be betrothed. A man would be betrothed to a woman. That means that they would go through an engagement period for about a year. Okay? They are engaged for about a year. But in, in this context, he, I believe that Paul is also going to use language that could go for widows and, and just simply for, for virgins or those who... Um, are singles, so I'm going to use the word singles from out throughout the sermon. But it says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. We may be tempted when we read that to say, okay, great. This is just Paul giving us his idea on singleness. This isn't what God says, but that's not what it's saying. He's basically saying that what he's about to teach is not something that Jesus himself taught or addressed that he knows of, but this is coming from wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and it's authoritative, okay? It's authoritative. So he's applying the gospel, he's applying godly wisdom to singles. So he says, now concerning the betrothal, for those who are single, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's word, mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's not words that we necessarily want to hear, words that I would have wanted to hear as a single. But what is Paul talking about when he says, 
that it's good for a single to remain single in view of the present distress. Why does he say that it is good? When Paul here speaks about the present distress, I believe he's speaking probably about a number of things. Number one, as Christians, Christians were under vast persecution. So he could have been speaking about that present distress and saying in light of the way that Christians are being persecuted and the times, I I think that you all should remain single. The present distress, some theologians say, it probably refers to the fact that Greece, at this time that Paul was writing around his time, had gone through a great famine. And maybe Paul is just temporarily calling singles to live single rather than get married in light of the famine. But I think that what Paul means here is not something that was just uh, contextual, but something that is actually broad in its scope, that it's, it's still the same advice that he would give today. The present distress is the fact that the world and those who are, are in the world who don't know Jesus, that they are, they're lost. They're broken. There's so much brokenness and there's so much hurt and so much pain. So he's telling those who are single, specifically those in context, those who have not been called with the gift of singleness. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about how singleness was a gift. Those who are not burning with uh, sexual passion. Those who just don't have to be in a relationship. He's saying if God has gifted you in that way, if there's any way possible for you to have self-control in light of the present distress, in light of the lostness of the world, in light of the state of the city of Corinth that was worse than Las Vegas, there was a, there was a slogan that says to, to, Corinth, to, to Corinthicize someone. It was a, a slogan of immorality. That means that someone was Corinthicized. That means that they were just messed up. They were dirty, they were jacked up, they were hoodlum. Paul saying, in light of this, you should remain single. But not just in light of the, the present distress. He then goes on in verse 25, 29 and he says, for the time is growing very short. And then in verse 31 he says, for the world is passing away. In other words, he's telling Christian singles to live for Jesus with urgency because Jesus is soon to return and we need people who are dedicated to the great commission, to the, to the mission that Jesus gave in order to reach this lost world. In order to reach this lost world. We see In verse 27, Paul says these words. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So what is Paul saying? He's saying if you're married right now, don't become obsessed about being free from a wife. Focus on the mission. And if you're single, don't be obsessed about Finding a wife, he says, but focus on a mission. So he's saying, stay there, find contentment. Then he goes on in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. So Paul goes on and he lets 
the congregation, the Corinthians know that, hey, if you do get married, you're not sinning. You're not sinning. In other words, he's just giving, giving advice. Christian advice, godly advice, saying if you can, live on mission for Jesus. If you're burning with desire and passion, and he says go and pursue marriage, you won't be in sin. However, if you are married and you get a divorce, and it's not for a reason that the Lord commands, you, you are in sin, right? Now look at verse 36 to 38. Because Paul picks back up on this thought. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. So this person who was betrothed, this person who's engaged, there was arranged marriages, he's saying if you are betrothed to someone and uh, your passions are strong towards that person, go for marriage. It's not a sin. Verse 37, but... Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed do well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So again, Paul is not saying if you're a single, it is a sin for you to desire marriage and for you to pursue marriage. But rather, if you're single and you have the gift of singleness, and you know that God has given you strength in that area, trust the Lord, give yourself fully to the mission. And how do we know that Paul is doing this and not promoting just complete abstinence from marriage? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says these words. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul tells Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, that to, if someone is preaching that we ought to forbid marriage, not promote marriage, then they're, they're teaching falsely because marriage is good. Genesis uh, chapter 2 through 3, marriage is a blessing. It is ordained by God. It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's not forbidding marriage. Rather, he's just saying, if you can and you feel called to, don't feel pressured by society, to live this way. Give yourself to the mission. And what is the mission? Jesus, right before he left to ascend and to go into heaven to be with the Father, he gave us a mission in Matthew 28, verse 19. It says, go into all the world, teaching and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching everyone to do all that he has commanded. So what is the mission? It's the, to reach this world. It's to mark the world with baptism. It is to teach the world his ways. It is to make sure that they grow up. That's the mission. It's to reach this dying world. And those who are married and those who are single, that's our mission. But we've got to be on mission with urgency. Not at our own pace. Not at our own speed. Not when we feel like it. But with urgency. When I was in college... 
knew the Lord was calling me out of a relationship. As I said, the, I knew that the Lord was calling me into ministry full time. There was a burden on my heart for it. The young lady that I was with was a, a really nice young lady, but she didn't have a burden for ministry, and I knew that it would be difficult. Because as I was trying to serve the Lord and, and begin preaching and ministering, it was just a fight. It was a tug of war. And I knew the Lord was calling me out of it. Never forget when the Lord, through a number of different circumstances, pulled me out of that relationship. It was His grace. I never forget the freedom and the urgency that He placed upon my heart right after it happened. It's like I, I came alive and I, I began to find satisfaction in Him rather than in her. See, I had believed the lie that I had to have somebody to be happy. And I'll be honest, the reason that I stayed in that relationship was because I was afraid of being alone. I was that person who felt like I always had to be around someone, I always had to be in someone else's company, that if someone wasn't adoring me, then that was less than. But when God began to pull me out of that relationship and when he set me apart, I began to see that, that, I, that me being alive is not contingent upon someone else adoring me or being able to hold someone's hand or to go on a date. In fact, he allowed me to see with fresh eyes that he had called me to a mission, and that mission, and through Jesus, that I can find satisfaction and joy. I'll never forget walking that campus after the Lord began to break me and minister to me, after I began to say, yes, Lord, to your will, yes, to your way. One day I walked into a cafeteria, and I was just so broken, and I was just so amazed at God's grace. I said, Lord, I just want to talk to somebody about you. And I was standing in line, and there was a young woman. And I began to talk to this young woman, and she began to reveal to me that she was just broken, and her grandmother was dying. And we were in the cafeteria waiting in line, and I shared the gospel with this girl. And there was an urgency on my heart, and she wept, and she repented, and she put her faith and trust in Jesus. She began to come to our church and to our Bible study, and I remember feeling alive, and I remember thinking to myself, Lord, I should have been doing this for the last three years. What, what could you have done through me on this campus if I was focused and if my attention was undivided? I remember shortly after, it was around the same time, I got a call to come preach at a church for a youth day. And I remember preparing that sermon because I was able to focus and my attention was undivided, just, just loving the text and living in that text. And I remember going up to preach that, that, that it was a Friday night. I remember it was a nice crowd there, and I was excited to preach. I was thinking with clear, a clarity that I hadn't had before. I remember the Lord working that night. To, to my own thoughts, I, I didn't know if anyone came to know Jesus. I just know the, the, heavy, the Holy Spirit was there heavily. Two weeks ago, I received a, a message, an email. It was from a, a young man. He said, Reverend Williams, I don't know if you remember me, but you preached Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It was at this church and at this time. And I just want to let you know that that night that you came to preach when I was a youth is a night I accepted my call to ministry. I am now a gospel preacher. And I have three kids of my own. Don't waste your singleness. Don't kick open 
a door that God has not opened yet. God is faithful. He is good. He loves you. You are his daughter. He is going, and his son, he is going to give you what you need, when you need it, and it's not something that you have to force or design. He is saying, until then, if I have called you to that, I am going to take care of you, but I need you to do something. I need you to seek first my kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Don't be anxious about these things. Don't be anxious about the things of the world, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Who is his righteousness? Jesus. And all these things will be added unto you. Focus and live with urgency. And I promise, I promise that God will provide. If he doesn't provide you with a wife, or a husband, I promise that he will provide you with a contentment and a peace. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be days where you struggle. That won't be, mean that there won't be days when you weep. There won't, that don't mean that there won't be days where you feel miserable. But what it does mean is that God, through his Holy Spirit, will come to you in a nick of time, and he will keep you. I'm telling you, he will keep you. Are you living with urgency? The main reason why a lot of us aren't living with urgency is because we don't have contentment. Right? I know, I've been there. It's hard when you're in that place to, to have contentment if you're not completely convinced that God is for you and he will provide for you. That's what Paul picks up. She's talking about contentment next. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now this is, can be confusing. What is Paul doing here? I mean, look at what he says. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Somebody's like, yes! <laughs> and this is what I'm looking for. Please don't leave the sanctuary at that point, all right? Paul is using hyperbole here. He is overstating a fact in order to make a point. In fact, he is giving balance to us as Christians. Christian husband should be familiar with Ephesians chapter 5 that the Lord calls us to love our wives as the church. In the same way that Jesus sacrificed for the church, that he gave his life up for the church. That's how we're called to love. So what do we do with this verse that says, if you're married, live as one who's not married? I believe that what Paul is saying, as he mentions these five things, is he mentions relationships, right? Then he goes on, and those who were not mourning, he meant, and, re, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, he mentions emotions, and those who buy as though they had no goods, he mentions material wealth. What is Paul doing? He's saying, as a Christian, we must get to the point of where we are thankful for what God has given us, 
but we don't live as if we need it, as if it's supreme. A Christian husband should be grateful and thankful for his wife and for marriage, but he should not find his identity in his wife and in his marriage. That shouldn't be what, what fills him up and what keeps him going. What fills him up and what keeps him going is his relationship with Jesus. And many marriages and many relationships are struggling so much because the person in the marriage is looking to their spouse to do what only God can do. Only God can fulfill you in such a way that you have joy, unspeakable joy. And if you're looking for your husband or your wife to fulfill you in that way, you are going to be miserable and disappointed. Why? Because they are broken just like you are broken. And they cannot meet your deepest needs. So what is he saying to the Christian single? Let's, we have to live with urgency and seek to find contentment and know that nothing will, nothing will satisfy you supremely besides Jesus. And no one will. Philippians chapter 4, one resource that I was using, I was so thankful for in pointing and illustrating this. Paul does this in Philippians chapter 4 as he's talking to the church of Philippi about contentment. Now he's in jail writing this letter. And while he was in jail, I, though he planted many churches, most churches forgot about him and didn't send him a gift, didn't check on him. But this church in Philippi did. And listen to what he says. And this is going back to 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, as those who rejoice, as though they're not rejoicing. So he's given this balance. You can be happy, be happy that the Lord blessed you with a new car, new job, or whatever. But at the same time, you rejoice as though you're not rejoicing. You rejoice as though you know that that's not supreme. It's good that God gave it to you. It's a gift, but that's not necessary. And then he picks up. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Do you see what he did? I rejoice. I'm thankful that you gave to me. I'm thankful that you came to my aid, but then in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I'm grateful. Thank you for this gift. But this isn't what's going to keep me going. Verse 11. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's contentment is what you need, Christian saying. If you're going to live for Jesus with urgency, you need contentment. If, if you're not fighting for contentment, praying for contentment, looking for contentment, you're not going to be able to live for Jesus, number one, not do it well, and you won't be able to do it with urgency. But Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 how we cultivate a heart of contentment. Number one, he says, says you pray for it. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Your heart is anxious, you pray for it. 
So you got to cultivate a prayer life. You will not live with urgency for Jesus if you're not cultivating a prayer life. That means you're going to always be able to pray well, but if you're not intentional about praying, you are not going to have ongoing contentment. You're going to be like a roller coaster. And you're going to make mistakes when you're down, many mistakes. But you also cultivate contentment by trusting God through life circumstance. Contentment is something that is learned. Paul said, I learned to be content. We can't make ourselves content. But we serve a, a gracious father who wants us to look more like Jesus, who helps us to become content. By sometimes allowing us to live in a season of need so that we can know that what we need is not what we want, but it's Jesus. So maybe the season that you're in in singleness, not maybe, the season that you're in in singleness is a season that the Lord is allowing you to be in if he's called you to marriage, so that when you're married, you won't drive your husband or your wife crazy. Because marriage is not going to change your discontented heart. I promise you it won't. Only knowing that you can do all things through Christ Jesus. Only when I know that it's my strength is through Christ Jesus. My satisfaction is through Christ Jesus. My joy is through Christ Jesus. And you're saying, well, I can't find contentment because I just want to be married. And if I'm not married, then life makes no sense. And I'm telling you, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Look to him, not to your own wisdom. Look to him, not your own wisdom. So Paul points us to trust God. He points us to contentment. He points us, in essence, as he always does through his writing, we can say he points us back to Jesus and to the good news and to a reality that we can live for Jesus with urgency because we know that Jesus lived for us with urgency. And we know that there is one who loves us more than anyone could ever love us. For he died on a cross in order that we can find forgiveness of sins. And he was resurrected from the grave. He defeated death for us in order that we can have that same resurrecting power to defeat whatever insecurities, deficiencies, and lacks that are in our life. We need to look to Jesus. Point number two. Your singleness, you live for Jesus with urgency by trusting that he can make you content. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he shepherds us, we want less. Second, we look at marriage with accuracy. Scripture tells us to look at marriage with accuracy. Many times our vision for singleness takes on the world's vision for singleness. And Hollywood has a, a bad an unaccurate picture of what it means to be single as well as what it means to be married. And we need the correct view of marriage because if we're not careful, if we're getting our theology of love from the notebook, it's a movie, or some other love story, and we think that, that life and marriage is just going to be just 
a rose bed, then we're going to fight for something that doesn't exist, and when we get it, we're going to be miserable. But Paul says, no, I'm not really just trying to discourage you from marriage, but I want you to know, I want you to have an accurate picture of what marriage is. And what is this accurate picture? Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention. Paul points the heart of a single to this reality that those who are married, are, they're going to have worldly troubles. Verse 28. And then he points five times in three verses to the fact that those who are married, they're going to have anxieties. Worldly troubles and anxieties. That word worldly trouble in the Greek is a picture of two things being pressed together almost to a breaking point. Two shall become one flesh. That's a beautiful thing. We become one. But in marriage, the two are sinners and they're fallen. And the pressures of life sometimes press them together in a way that hurts and that doesn't help. And he also talks about anxiety. This word anxiety in the Greek is a, is a picture of, of two, of one, a person or thing being pulled in two different directions. He says, I want you to have an accurate pursuit of marriage, that marriage is tough. It's tough. And 2000 census data reveals that it's tough by giving us some tough stats. 20% of first marriages end within five years. 33% end within 10 years. Been more, married more than 10 years, praise God, amen? Listen to this. 50% of marriages end Within 20 years. Second marriages, 83% of them end in divorce. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to scare you as a single. I'm saying that to sober you as a single. Singleness is not going to, being married is not going to solve your anxieties and your troubles. Being married is spiritual warfare. And if you're not ready for that next level of spiritual warfare, you need to use this time to get ready. Take your eyes out of the clouds. Live for Jesus with urgency and let God work through you and on you. Because it's not, it's not easy. It says, for the single person, back in the text, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. He's saying that that's, that's what the unmarried person, the unmarried man should be anxious about. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. So Paul is saying when we accept this call of biblical singleness and when we live with urgency for Jesus, we are able to be free and to be devoted to Jesus. But when you become married, that doesn't happen. Why? Because you're anxious about pleasing your spouse. Your attention is divided. He's trying to call singles, as we see in verse 35, he's trying to call singles to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. You know, my wife and I, a few, a couple years ago, we started this reading plan, at least we attempted it. It was a really aggressive daily reading plan where you read 10 chapters a day, okay, uh, from the Bible. And generally, it'll take you away from 30 to 45 minutes. And because I'm a pastor, and I can use that first hour of my day away from the kids, away from the family. I was able to go through that for a year. My wife did really well, but because of the strains that was on her, it just was a, a little tougher. This year, she picked it back up and said this year she was going to make it through, and she started off the first few months really good, really aggressive. The reason she was going through it is to know the Bible well and to help you to kind of know where things are and to have a, a real good scope of the Scripture. I remember one night coming in and from work, she had put the kids down to bed, and I could see a tension in her heart because she had just got comfortable in her reading plan. She had just started. She was trying to get her 10 chapters that day taken care of. But she saw me walk through the door. She said, hmm, <laughs> reading plan, husband. Time with Jesus, husband. Time with Jesus, and I can see this angst in her heart. And of course, being a good husband I am, I just say, oh, go ahead and we'll talk when you're done. <laughs> but I can see that tension. And Paul is just trying to let the singles know that if you're living for Jesus with urgency and you, you, as you're called to be all people, called to be on mission, know that there's going to be a divide in your heart when you get married. And he's saying, I just want you to have a realistic picture of marriage. I want you to know that there's, 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 there's a, a, a trouble in your heart because you are going to want to get away to spend time with Jesus, but you're going to have a to-do list that's really long, and you're going to find yourself constantly frustrated. Amen, married couples? But he also says there's worldly troubles. There's, there's financial troubles where you once could do whatever you wanted to do and go where you wanted to go. No, there's a tension in your heart because now you have to check in with your spouse. And now, the way you spend is being critiqued. My husband has a black belt and shopping for golf materials, right? That's what he does well. And the husband wants to shop, but he knows that he's restrained. So in your singleness, have an accurate view of marriage. And know that it's not easy. Premarital counseling, in just about most situations where I do premarital counseling, I just love how it starts off. The two, the couple, they're just in love, right? And all they want to do is get married, and they're excited. And we were the same way, Amber and I. And you really can't do a whole lot of wrong during that period, right? So we're going through premarital counseling. I'm trying to prepare the couple for marriage. And there's a, a gleefulness. There's a skipping to the whole thing. Right? And at some point, I always warn a couple and I say, 
I want you to understand that you're reading a book, you may know the answers, we're just reviewing what's in the book, but this is about to be spiritual warfare. When this, this person can do no wrong, wears off, when you see where they put their underwear in the morning, where they throw the towel, how often they hit the snooze button, how selfish they are with their money, how much of an egomaniac they are, how she really, when she said she couldn't cook, she really couldn't cook. When all of this hits you, you're going to need what we're talking about. So pretend it's happening now, buckle down, and go to work. Third and final point. is Learn and prepare for marriage well. Learn and prepare for marriage well. Paul says, live for Jesus with urgency. Cultivate a prayer life. Cultivate a heart of contentment. Get in community. Get involved in the church. Sign up for things that's going on in the church. Share your faith with others. Do everything you can to keep your heart in love with Jesus. He says, look at marriage accurately. Erase this Hollywood vision of marriage. Get your heads out the cloud and thinking it's just going to be rosy and it's going to solve all your problems. See that it causes trouble and anxiety, which should help you live for Jesus now. Finally, he says, says, learn and prepare for marriage well. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Got to remember that, singles. If you prepare for marriage, know that what you are preparing for is a covenant, not a contract. In your dating relationships, when Nuke Nuke got on your last nerve, you just say, it's over, don't call me. You go back to that person three or four times, and then you say, it's over again, don't call me, and then it's really over, right? With marriage, that's not how it works. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. A contract is based upon conditions. It's two parties come together. You supply this, I supply that. If you keep up your part and I keep up my part, we'll stay together, we'll make it work. If you break it, I'll get to leave, you get to leave. No, a covenant is deeper. Biblical covenant, is, it has permacy, and it's not just made between the husband and the wife. This, this covenant is made between God, the husband, and the wife. And God is the one who gets to determine what the covenant looks like, what makes it official, and when it ends. That means that we need to, be, we need to prepare for it well. If you desire to get married, you need to prepare for it well. And how do you start preparing for marriage well? Get your Bibles. By understanding that it's a covenant, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married with whom she wishes. Understanding that it's till death do you part. Like when we say those wedding vows on a wedding day, like that, that actually means what it says. For sickness, 
and in health. Like the sickness part is real. For better or for, that worst part is real. But a lot of times we get married, we're like, oh no, I'm gone. Like what, what happened to the worst part? This ain't even worse, this is just bad. Like I'm out, right? Because we see it as a ceremony. It's not a mere ceremony. It is the making of a covenant. And God takes covenants serious. Go home, research, study covenants. I wish I had time to go through it to see when God cuts a covenant, something happens, something dies. You want to prepare well. Love when the disciples, after Jesus had ascended to go to heaven, they were sitting around talking. They're just looking up in heaven, just gazing. The angel came to him. He said, man, what are y'all doing? I've been saying, man, I just saw a man leap into heaven, and he ain't came down yet. What you mean what I'm doing? The angel said, get your head out the clouds and go and be on mission. Singles, get your head out of the clouds. Live with urgency and be on mission. Prepare well by understanding that marriage is a covenant and that if you're going to step into a lifelong covenant, then the least you can do while you wait is entrust yourself to the Holy Spirit and the Lord and allow him to work on you. Draw close to him so he can work on you. Prepare well by beginning to practice self-denial. Look at your checkbook and see how you spend money. Because if you want to be married, one day that's not going to happen. And you're not going to just magically become unselfish after the honeymoon. No, unselfishness happens when you allow the Holy Spirit to work on you. But if you hadn't been allowing the Holy Spirit to work with you, and you haven't been in the presence of Jesus practicing self-denial, it's going to ruin your marriage early on. So prepare well. Prepare well. You Single women... Got time on your hand? Prepare well. Learn how to cook. The old saying, a weight to a man's heart is through his stomach. I'm telling you, it's for real. Amber whipped up a dish once. I was like, oh, yes, yeah, this is wifey material right here. Oh, I want to be married. I want to be married. I'm mad at God, complaining about God. Get in the kitchen. Call some of these older women. Say, what's the best dish that you make? Next Thursday, every Thursday, I'm learning a new dish. I'm spending time with a godly woman. I'm going to learn about marriage. I'm going to, I'm going to ask them to be real with me and tell me what, what's good and what's not good. How did you make it over? Prepare well. Prepare well, young men. Prepare well. Start guarding your eyes. Training your eyes for holiness, training your eyes for one woman. You got jumpy eyes now, you're going to have jumpy eyes then. Prepare well. Learn how a car works. Figure out where the engine and the battery is. Prepare well. Stop wasting your singleness. It's a covenant. It's a covenant. Be the best person you can be if the Lord calls you to marriage. And be ready. Be ready. Last, preparing well means that you don't settle. 
says you marry only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Don't settle. Don't, don't be so desperate that you begin to give too much grace to a young man who's interested in you. Well, he says he's a Christian. Ask him what that means. What church do you go to? When was the last time you've been? What books are you reading? What does your prayer life look like? What ministries are you involved in? What's your bank statements look like? Do you give to the church? Oh, well, baby, you know, I was raised in the church. I ain't been in a while, but shoot, Jesus is always on my mind. What's your favorite Bible verse? John 3, 16, of course. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. (laughs) Don't get played. Don't get played. If you settle while you're dating, you are going to be miserable when you're married. If you go into it praying that this person comes to know Jesus and loves Jesus, when you get married and you realize that they, real, that they don't and that you can't change them, only God can change them, you're in an uphill battle. Wait on the, Lord, on the Lord. Live with urgency for Jesus. See marriage in its accuracy. Prepare well. Prepare well. And don't settle. And it's hard. It's hard. But don't settle. You are just going to make it worse for yourself. Some people say, well, it's better, better be miserable and married than single and alone. No, that's, that's not true. You're just saying that because you're single and alone. The person who's married and miserable is saying, I'd rather be single and alone. <laughs> and what's the issue? The issue is, the heart issue is contentment. And the only one who can heal the heart is Jesus. Look to God as your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Look, he makes me to lie down. I love that. I love how he got personal. He didn't didn't say us. Spoke in a singular form. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Single. He can make you to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Single. He can lead you beside still waters. He restores my soul. I know you've been through a lot, sweetie. I know you've been through a lot, man. I know you've been broken. You've been lied on. You've been cheated on. You've you've thought someone loved you and they've abandoned you, but he can restore your soul. You don't need a man to restore your soul. He restores your soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Why? Because he has a plan that's bigger than our individual lives. It's to glorify his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, that you would would help us to see you, whether married or single, and to bloom where we are planted. Help us to grow where we are right now and to be on mission. Help us to be on mission. In Jesus' name.